Well, good evening, and it's nice to be with you. And thanks especially to Johnny for having given you some details that are about 20 years out of date. <laughs> I'm enjoying retirement at the moment, so thanks very much. Our passage this evening um, is from the first half of Colossians chapter 2. Now, I think we have one or two visitors here this evening, and you're extremely welcome. If you're not familiar with this book in the New Testament, it's a very compressed book. It says an awful lot in comparatively few words. And so uh, the speakers have been struggling to unpack what he says and to try to get the message across. So if you're struggling tonight, uh, you can spare a thought for the speakers in the series as well. But before we read the passage, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been taken in by an online scam? Perhaps an email or an offer of a great bargain that is made to you? Uh, recently, uh, some of you received an email asking for help, and it seemed to come from a member of our church. I won't mention any names. But some of you told me that out of the kindness of your heart and the innocence of your mind, you responded positively to a request for financial assistance. Now, we live in a world full of scams. Sometimes it is particularly the sincere, good-hearted people who are taken in. On the other hand, if the scam appears to be offering something for nothing, it tends to be those with a hint of greed who allow themselves to be deceived. And in some cases, people have been robbed of their life savings when a little bit of technical knowledge and understanding of evil and criminals would have saved them from being deceived. The religious world has always been full of scams. Christendom is no exception. False teachers who claim to be spreading God's word sometimes present Christians with a more interesting type of Christian life or an alternative way uh, to make progress in the Christian life. And often, it is the sincere-minded Christians who want to live a better life for the Lord who are taken in by these scams. And Paul's letter to the Colossians was written to strengthen Christians against being taken in by nice-sounding, plausible scams. Now, just to give you a, a little bit of background, the geographical location of the church that this letter was written to, the church at Colossae, um, is quite significant. Now, you probably won't be able to, to see this from where you are, but in this letter, Paul mentions three towns where there were churches. Colossae, on the extreme right, um, along the road uh, to the left of that, there was Laodicea, which we read about, we'll read about in our reading. And then up on the hill to the right, there was Hierapolis. Now, you may be able to see where these cities were in relation to the valleys and the mountain ranges. Um, because the, those, particularly Laodice Colossae and Laodicea, were in the valley between mountain ranges. 
And the valleys is where trade routes followed. You, you didn't have caravans of goods coming from the Silk Road in the east. They didn't go over mountains. They had to go through the valleys between mountain ranges. So actually, the geography is quite important. And so in ancient times, traders, they brought more than goods for sale. They brought news from the east. They brought new fashions, new religious ideas and philosophies from the east. And in a way, these trade routes were an ancient form of the internet. Many of these religious ideas became popular, but they were scams. And it was the poorly taught churches who were wide open to being fooled by them. And the churches, these particularly at Colossae and Laodicea, were in danger of being taken in by these false ideas. So with that background, let's read Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. I'm going to take it into, in small sections and try to summarize each paragraph as we go along. So first of all, the first five verses. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ." in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let me just try to summarize that paragraph with this statement. It's describing Paul's struggle to bring the Colossians to a much deeper understanding and knowledge about Christ. And why was he going to do that? Well, let's read verses 4 and 5. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So this little paragraph is giving Paul's reason, which was to save them from being fooled by religious scams, uh, deluded with plausible arguments. Then the next uh, two verses, six and seven, he says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So here Paul is giving a challenge. And the challenge is to walk the way we were taught, to live our lives the way the Bible says we should. And that's quite a challenge. And again, in verse 8, he has a little warning in this connection, immediately following the challenge. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So here Paul is warning the Christians to beware of absorbing what we might call traditional religious principles. And we'll look later at what those might be. 
And then we come to the last paragraph, a longer paragraph, where he is now talking about the Lord Jesus. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now that's a very dense paragraph. I'll just summarize it briefly by saying that Paul is going to show how Christ is God's radical solution to the problem to walk before God the way we ought and the way we were taught. So that's our passage this evening. Let me uh, now just pick out those little summaries that I gave you, put them together as a summary of the whole passage, but put them in a particular order to demonstrate Paul's thought flow. First of all, I'm going to say that the central focus of this passage is the challenge that Paul presents to walk the way we were taught. So we'll think about that challenge in a bit more detail. Then surrounding that challenge, we have the, if you like, it's bracketed by these two warnings. First of all, uh, he wants to save them from being fooled by religious scams, and then he warns them to beware of absorbing traditional religious principles. Then, in the last lengthy paragraph, he will go into more detail about how Christ is God's radical solution to this problem, as opposed to the sort of false ideas that he is warning them against. And those false ideas, next week, Jim Tarrant will be looking at the rest of the chapter where Paul go, will go into greater detail on what some of those false but popular alternatives were. And finally, we're going to end with where Paul starts. We'll go back to how Paul introduces this, sec- this section where he explains his intense motivation for teaching them what he is about to write about. So let's begin with a brief look at the challenge. To walk the way we were taught. Or if I could put it more generally, this is the challenge. How do I I become a better person? Now, some people are not concerned with being a better person. But particularly those who have a religious sensitivity are genuinely concerned about how they can become a better 
person. If you were to take a survey across the world, I think you would find a certain commonality that there is a tra what Paul maybe calls traditional uh, thinking, traditional religious thinking, uh, which is surprisingly common irrespective of a person's culture or country or even religion. And there is a, a range of traditional answers to this question. Particularly if you have any religion and religious aspirations, you have moral standards. Generally, those come as part of your religion. Those are moral standards to aim at. And those moral standards seem to produce an instinctive human response in every culture. One is to strive to keep God's laws as we understand them and his regulations. And that is often we set out on that journey in hope, thinking that, well, because we know these standards, all we have to do is to try to live up to them. But what happens when we can't? What happens when we do something wrong? Well, often the instinctive response is to feel guilt. And then when we out of guilt, we often try to balance what we've just done wrong with good deeds. And right across the world, uh, there seems to be this idea that God is, is going to weigh up the good things that we do against the bad things that we do. And we hope that the good outweighs the bad. If you ask many people in Belfast, many of them would actually give you a similar answer. But just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to someone from China, from a Buddhist background, and they said almost exactly the same. So there's something very fundamental about these ideas. Now, then some people go a bit deeper and they try to analyze, why is it that I do something wrong? And one of the basic responses is to say, it's because of external contamination. Other people make me do things. So there's a teaching then, and some of you may have been brought up in this sort of environment that says, if you want to keep yourself pure, if you want to make progress in your life as a Christian, you should cut yourself off from contamination from the outside secular world. You should not be involved in anything worldly, which might range from football to music to having non-Christian friends. This is a solution that is common to uh, a lot particularly of law-based religion, to try to keep yourself separate from external influences. But those who think even more deeply discover that that is not the solution, because they discover the problem is not actually coming from the outside, the problem is there already. So there are problems with our desires. And if we trace a lot of our wrongdoing to desires that come from within us, what's the solution? Well, the solution across the world, again, seems to be to try to suppress the desires of our body and of our mind and our personality. If we could only suppress those desires, then we would be a better person. Now, all those ideas, there's a certain logic to them, 
And to some people, even perhaps even to you tonight, you may say, well, that makes sense. But the problem is that those who try it and who follow these paths rigorously, sincerely, they discover it doesn't work. But these can seem reasonable, but they do not change us into a better person. At most, it can be damage limitation. But some Christians still have these instincts ingrained in their personality. And becoming a Christian does not necessarily dispel these instinctive reactions when we sin, particularly that's when it occurs. So what is God's solution to enable us to walk the way he wants us to without resorting to these instinctive human reactions? Well, Paul is going to develop his solution in several stages, and he's going to focus in each stage in how Christ is God's very radical solution. So we're looking here, verses 9 to 15. The first thing that he, is going, he focuses on is to tell us something fundamental about Christ. And that is that the whole fullness of deity or the Godhead, but the whole fullness of God lived bodily in Christ. Now, this is full of meaning for those um, who try to understand uh, who Jesus Christ was as he lived on earth. But I'd like you to think uh, about not just what it tells us about Christ, but what it tells us about the immensity of being a human being. I used to hear preachers try to explain the incarnation of God becoming human uh, like this. They said, suppose you saw a community of little ants, those insects that scurry around, and you had compassion on them, you loved them, and you wanted to show to them that you loved them. So the preacher says, the only way you could do that properly would be for you to become a little ant yourself. But the problem with that explanation is that if you became a little ant, you would not have the ability to explain to other ants the deep feelings which you had as a human. You would need words and language which are beyond the capability of ants. But even deeper than that, if you became an ant, you would not have the ability to have the same deep feelings of love as an ant had. You would no longer love them that way. Becoming from a human to an ant, you would lose the ability to be yourself and to have the feelings which you had as a human. The design of ants is too limited. They cannot feel or express the deeper feelings we have as humans. But when God designed and created humans, he made sure that we were sufficiently sophisticated to enable God to become human and still be God. This is what he means when he says that the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in Jesus Christ. 
And when Christ lived in bodily form as a human, he was still able to think the thoughts of God. He lost nothing in becoming human. God created humans with a language ability and a level of understanding so that God could communicate his deepest longings and his plans to us. In short, God designed humans so that he himself could dwell in a human body. And the implications for us of this are staggering. It means that the human body is designed for God to dwell in. Humans are uniquely capable of being indwelt by God. And this means that since humans were designed for God to live in, a human is incomplete without God. In other words, if God is not living in us, we are not complete human beings as God originally intended us. How do we become complete? How do we become filled uh, as humans? Well, the only way for to be a complete or full person is to have God living in us. As Paul says, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. And the fact that a human body without God is incomplete leads Paul to his next uh, points. And here he's going into quite a detailed explanation um, to describe what it is like to be a human being without God and what God's verdict on such a person is. And he uses two pictures illustrating God's solution, God's analysis of the human condition without God. These two conditions, the two illustrations are circumcision and baptism. One of these, circumcision, is something that fortunately Christians are not very familiar with. Particularly Christian men are glad of that. Baptism, yes, we are more familiar with that. But uh, let's uh, do a little bit of digging into the Old Testament to see what points Paul is making about circumcision. Paul reminds his readers about the reason God gave circumcision to Abraham and to his descendants. We have to go back to Genesis 17 for the first reference to circumcision. But it's interesting to note that immediately before introducing circumcision, God sets this challenge before Abraham in the very first verses of chapter 17. It says that the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now here's the challenge. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Notice that challenge. Walk before me and be blameless. The same challenge, really, that Paul gave to the Colossians. And only after giving this challenge does God give Abraham the sign of circumcision. And just a few verses later, he talks about, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Notice the phrase, he says, you shall be circumcised in the flesh. And that word, that phrase, the flesh, is going to be significant 
in Paul's discussion. So how was Abram going to be blameless? How was he going to walk the way he had been taught? Was he going to have to try harder to be good, to try to discipline himself, to try to suppress his desires? God gave him a sign, which was a message which said from the outset that those basic religious responses were going to be all wrong and would not work. And the sign sign involved putting away part of what God calls the flesh. So let's think about the problem of what Paul calls the flesh. What is the flesh? Well, we know what physical flesh is, but in terms of the Bible, um, the flesh could probably be described as what we are without God. Our natural desires, our thinking, our efforts, our capabilities. Things which are not necessarily bad in themselves, but those instincts are not uh, divinely inspired. Now, it was Abraham's flesh, as I'll explain in a moment, which prevented him from being able to walk before God and blameless. Now, without going into details too much, in the previous chapter, Abraham had just demonstrated that his efforts in the flesh led only to trouble. God had promised him that he would have a son in his old age. And Abram's natural response to that, the response of the flesh, was to use whatever resources he had to fulfill God's promise. He looked at his wife. She was very old. He says, well, God could do nothing with her. But he says, I do have other resources. I've got a slave girl called Hagar. So I'll use my own resources to try to achieve what God has promised. And so he had, he used his slave girl Hagar to have a surrogate son. And so Ishmael was born. And Abram's reliance on his own natural resources, that was living by the flesh, we could say, and it was a disaster. So what was Abram saying? What was God saying to Abram about the flesh? He was saying it has to be put away. That's what circumcision was. God said the flesh could not be reformed or improved. It was dead because of sin, and it must be put off. That's what circumcision was a symbol of. So when Paul talks about us having gone through a similar process in Christ, uh, through Christ uh, at conversion, Christians do not need to be circumcised literally, But what God says right from the start, he writes off the flesh Um, so that we do not try to reach God's standards. We do not try to walk and be blameless depending on our own efforts and our own resources of self-discipline and our sense of guilt. So that's the first picture when Paul talks about circumcision. It is this message that we will never achieve the challenge that God has set before us through our own ability and efforts. The second picture is of baptism. Now, just a few weeks ago, we had a baptism when five guys were baptized here. And 
it's it just like a funeral service. Okay, we were, stand, we were standing round the grave, and each of those guys was lowered down, well, they walked down into a watery grave. They were put completely underwater. So in that sense, they were buried. Fortunately, that was not the end, because a miracle took place. They were raised from the dead. They came out again, a picture of a new person, of someone who had died but had now received new life. And so baptism is a picture of what's necessary to be able to walk blamelessly before God. If we live by the flesh, by our own efforts, we are effectively dead. We're buried, dead and buried. That's the first step of baptism. And our independent self, a person without God, is basically dead before God and is worth only being buried, not reformed. But the only solution then is to receive new life. And so Paul says uh, that having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. In other words, when a person is in Christ, when they become a Christian and are put into Christ, the life that Christ has, the life of Christ, is given to us and we have new life. And Paul puts these two pictures together in verse 13. And he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. In other words, if we are in Christ, there are three things that happen to us because they happen to Christ. When we become a Christian, these three things happen to us. First of all, the death sentence on our humanity without God has been carried out. It was carried out upon Christ. He died for us in our place. But actually, it's as though we were in Christ and the death sentence, which we deserved, was carried out legally. Secondly, the result of that is that we are freed from guilt as a motivator for living. Christians should no longer be subject to guilt. That guilt is a very natural human response, but it is a false motivator for living the way we ought and for becoming a better person. And thirdly, we have Christ's life in us. So now we come to the culmination of uh, God's radical solution in Christ, which is what happened at the cross. On the cross, Christ paid the penalty for all sin. All sin, if you like, geographically. Everyone in the world, the sin of the whole world. But also in time. Right, the sin from Adam's sin and Eve's sin, right until the very last sin that will ever be committed in the history of this world. He died for all the sins that you committed before you became a Christian, if you're a Christian, but also for all the sins 
that you have still to commit. Christ paid the penalty for that. Our sins have been forgiven. The next thing that Paul talks about at the cross is about the principalities and powers and what happened to them at the cross. Now, the principalities and powers are the angelic opposition to God, and their head is Satan. Now, Satan is sometimes given the official professional title of the accuser. That sometimes sounds bad. But even in our legal system, when uh, someone is brought before a judge, there will be someone who accuses them on behalf of the state. I think it's called the counsel for the prosecution. And they will stand up and announce the crimes that this person is supposed to have committed. And they use the law to demand the penalty of the law upon that person. In some ways, that is the job of Satan. It was the job of Satan to accuse sinners of their sin and to use the law to demand the penalty of the law be carried out on that person. And the penalty was the death penalty. And when Christ was on the cross, Satan demanded the punishment for every sin in the history of humanity. And Christ bore all that punishment on the cross. That means that now, as a result, Satan is no longer able to throw any accusations at us because the sentence has already been carried out. And in that sense, uh, Satan, the accuser, has now no more ammunition to, uh, with which to accuse us. It's as though he used up every sin in the history of the universe, threw it at Christ, fired it at Christ, and Christ took it, endured it, and survived it. In that sense, Satan is now disarmed. He may pull the trigger, but there's just a click. There is no accusation he can throw at Christians that can make us feel guilty. And in that sense, he has no weapons. He has been disarmed. We sometimes sing that wonderful hymn which goes, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. But something even more profound happened on the cross. Something which Christ nailed to his cross. Something hugely important for enabling us to live as we should. Christ's death not only rendered the penalty of sin obsolete, but he rendered the law as a way of thinking and as a way of living. He rendered that obsolete by his death. In other words, the, even the very concept of trying to become a better person by looking at the laws and ticking each of them off and trying really hard to keep one of them, that's a very natural instinct. 
But that whole way of approaching the challenge of walking before God, Christ has said, that is now obsolete. It wasn't that it was swept under the carpet. He says, the law has been, and its penalty has been fulfilled, and I've now nailed it to the cross. It no longer is uh, the way for people to try to walk before God. That whole way of thinking is now obsolete. So as we walk before God, if, if you're a Christian, and if we sin, what is our instinctive response? There might come a feeling of guilt. But this is where we need to think through carefully the implications of Christ's death. Because that feeling of guilt is one of the elemental spirits of this world, if you like. One of the fundamental human religious responses. It's a a natural religious instinct. But that instinct and that teaching has no place in God's dealing with us once we become a Christian. And that has huge implications for how Christians respond to sin and failure as we seek to live as we were taught. So, for example, some Christians, when they sin, they are plagued with doubt. It's a natural reaction. But if that motivates us as Christians, if it takes us uh, away from our assurance, if it robs us of our joy, then we, if we are motivated by guilt, we have not understood fully the cross and what Christ achieved on that. That's important to recognize. If we have been resolved, if we've been robbed of the assurance of salvation because of our sin, then we have not fully, properly understood the cross. It doesn't mean that we're not Christians. It just means that we have not allowed, we have not yet gained a deep understanding of God's solution. And instead, we have fallen back on those instinctive human reactions, those fundamental religious teachings and instincts. They have come into our thinking and have robbed us like a scam that comes that we fall for and we find that we have been robbed of our joy, of our assurance before God. So what then, the solution to this, since this is so fundamental to get a deep understanding of Christ and what he has done. This takes us back to Paul's original uh, opening paragraph. It's a bit reluctant. Could you just move on, please, sir? Yeah. Where Paul talks about his struggle to bring the Colossians to a much richer understanding and knowledge about Christ. I asked you earlier if you'd ever been taken in by an online scam. And I particularly wonder, have you ever been robbed of money because you believed a plausible story? Some people have a natural tendency to be taken in like that. So what's the solution? 
The fundamental solution is to develop a much deeper understanding uh, of the truth. If you're the sort of person that gets taken in and fooled by online scams, by plausible emails uh, and offers, you need to gain a better understanding of how to identify if an email is actually from the person it says it's from. Now, there are ways of doing that. Some uh, simple, relatively simple technical ways of learning if an email is genuine. But you do need a little technical knowledge. You need to gain knowledge and understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. Without that, you're wide open to being deceived by these scams. And in the Christian world, we need to gain an understanding of what has gone on behind the scenes, particularly in connection with Christ. And so Paul, his motivation here uh, for writing is that without knowledge and understanding, you can be robbed by fine-sounding religious ideas. Paul heard that this was a threat to the church at Colossae. And so as Paul sat down in prison, he was wrestling in his mind with this. To find the key teaching, um, to find, could you just move on? Could, to find the key teaching the Colossians needed to avoid failing, falling for fake truth. How would you protect the church against falling for false ideas? There are lots of false ideas even in the evangelical Christian world today. How would you protect a Christian or a church, a Christian, for instance, who has a tendency to feel guilty and to doubt their salvation? Paul really had to struggle with this issue. What teaching would he pick? And so Paul talks about this way he has been struggling to put into words what he thinks they need. And the result of this, of Paul's struggle, was this letter. It's a very condensed letter, but every phrase in this letter to Colossians, Paul struggled to put it into words. And Paul's answer is a deep understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Remember, he started with the fullness of deity indwelt Christ in bodily form. So who Jesus Christ is, of what he did in his life, his suffering and how he responded to suffering, his death and his resurrection. If we understand these things, then when we face suffering, when we face the prospect of death, and when we face the fear of being punished for our sin, an understanding of Christ and of what he did will save us from being captured and deceived by false reactions. <clears throat> now, Paul struggled to put this into words. So it should be no surprise that if we want to follow Paul's footsteps, follow his thinking, we're going to have to struggle too. 
And if we as a church want to be secure and want to avoid being taken in by some of the popular trends in the Christian world today, then it's essential that we must be prepared to work hard to come to a deep understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he has achieved for us. Now, I just want to end by looking at Paul's very opening sentence. Because here Paul tells us who he is writing to. He mentions three groups. There's the church at Colossae, but there's also the church at Laodicea. He mentions that, and later he gives explicit instructions that this letter should be read and copied to the church at Laodicea. Remember, it was just up the road along the trade route. And the church at Laodicea was going to encounter the same ideas, the same threats that Colossae was doing. But then the third group, he says, everyone who has not met me face to face. And that includes us. So what do we know about how these groups responded to Paul's letter to the Colossians? Well, first of all, the Colossian church. Do you notice how Paul deliberately uses the terminology of riches and wealth and treasure? He talks about the riches of understanding and knowledge, which is Christ. He talks about all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And a deep understanding of Christ and his work is what makes a church rich. It's what makes an individual Christian rich. And Paul seems confident that the church at Colossae would respond positively to his letter. Uh, we read those words. He says, I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So Paul has confidence that they will respond to the challenge of gaining a rich understanding and knowledge. But what about the church at Laodicea, which was just up the road? This church would encounter the same religious scams and deceptive ideas, and Paul wanted them to receive the same teaching. But how did they respond? About one generation after Paul had copied his letter to Laodicea. In the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus has to write his own letter to that same church at Laodicea. But listen to some of the words he has to use about them. He says, you say about yourselves, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. But, he says, you are poor. This church had not gained the riches Paul was talking about. They had fallen for the scams and false trends that were moving through the churches. They felt that these ideas and these philosophies made them rich but they had been robbed of a true understanding. They had not focused in their teaching on the person of Christ. They had not committed themselves to the understanding, the knowledge and wisdom which Scripture reveals to us. They were not prepared to put in the work needed in the struggle to gain this understanding. And as a result, they were poor and they were uh, easy prey for the false ideas that were and, and false trends in the Christian world. And finally, what about us? We need to decide individually 
and as a church? Are we prepared to engage in the struggle to come to a deep understanding of who Christ is and what he has accomplished? If we join that struggle, even if it's hard, even if you find the book of Colossians really hard, do keep engaged in that struggle. Because if we join in that struggle, we will become secure, rooted, grounded in the truth. We'll be less likely to be deceived by the many scams which are circulating in the world of Christendom today. I trust we'll all commit ourselves to joining that struggle of coming to that deeper understanding of the riches which are in Christ. Let's just close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the, the depths of understanding that is in your word. We'd be first to commit to confess how hard sometimes it can be. But give us that desire to keep searching and to finding the treasure that is in the Lord Jesus. Amen.